This is Future Terms from Teach First, a half-termly panel event looking at the biggest issues facing schools in disadvantaged areas. Don't forget to subscribe to listen back to each event. But for now, enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to our final Future Terms panel of the year. It's lovely to have you with us. So today's topic is whole child development. Um, As everyone will be aware with the pandemic and its disruption to learning, the connection between the cognitive, the social, the emotional and the physical development of children has been really, really clearly highlighted across all phases and all sectors. Um, We're here today to consider to what extent our education system is able to cater to all four aspects of the child and their development um, and what impact poor physical development, poor social development, poor emotional health or poor cognitive development can have on a child's experience of school and progress within the classroom. We're going to think about the work schools are already doing, that different organisations are doing to support and we're going to hopefully take some time to answer your questions. Um, I'll be hosting the panel today. My name is Sarah Shreve. I'm the head of early years and primary here at Teach First. Uh, prior to working at Teach First, I taught across a range of special alternate provision and key stage one and early year settings. So I come from a background where some settings are much more set up for that whole child approach and others are more traditionally mainstream and often slightly more focused on the academic. Um, I'm a doctoral student at Brunel where I look at the experiences of children with cognitive disabilities in mainstream. So within my research, this is also something I've got a real interest in. And then I've been joined by our wonderful panel. I'll introduce them one by one and give them a few minutes to introduce themselves. So first of all, I'd love to welcome Jenny Griffiths, who is our education research specialist here at TeachFest. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, so I lead our work, um, our research work that supports our curriculum development for our teacher training programmes and our leadership programmes. And I've been leading our project looking specifically at whole child development for the last couple of years. Um, And what I'm sort of most interested in is exploring how the different principles of the physical, social, emotional and cognitive development connect, how they are interconnected throughout. I think uh, I trained as a teacher uh, a number of years ago. And at that point in time, I think it was often seen as quite separate and treated individually. So I remember, some of you might remember the SEAL programme, social emotional learning, which didn't have the effect that it was hoped to have. And I think we've seen that also with recent uh, research into mindfulness. Again, those sort of separate interventions in the classroom, not having the impact that we want them to have. So we're looking very closely at how do we embed these ideas throughout our training programs and our leadership programs to make sure that we're seeing that interconnectedness. So it's really not about a set of interventions or strategies. It's really about a sort of mindset or a lens of looking at the curriculum, looking at the policies throughout the school and helping teachers and leaders to look through that whole child lens. And remember, when I'm talking about behavior, when I'm talking about the curriculum, what does that mean for children at different stages of their development? If their reactions are because they've had a developmental delay, perhaps, or they're just not caught up. And I think that's particularly important uh, with the disruption that's happened through COVID. We're here seeing lots of challenges with that sort of social development because they've not had the same level of interaction or sort of physical development. Um, And I think, Sarah, we'll be, Pleased to hear that we've been talking a lot, of course, about what can the secondary in particular learn from primary and from the early years, where I think we see a lot more of that interconnectedness and understanding. So that's sort of where we are at the moment, just really sort of trying to spread that through our programmes and raise awareness um, through sort of practical strategies as well. Thank you so much, Jenny. Uh, and next on our panel, we have Peter Leonard. Peter is the CEO of Family Links. Uh, Thank you. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, Here at Family Links, the Centre for Emotional Health, we work with uh, various settings, uh, prisons, local authorities, uh, other charities and schools in particular, to uh, do exactly what, uh, Jenny, you've just been talking about. And that's not about individual interventions, but a whole approach. Um, which is uh, embedded across the school and, in fact, I'd say wider than the school, the whole the whole community. I think when we're talking about whole child development, we almost need to talk about whole community development because uh, what we find is the work that we do alongside schools and, and with schools um, has a ripple effect. Um, and it is it, the environment is key and the universality of the approach is key so that the work we do 
you know, applies adult to adult, um, uh, teacher to parent, uh, uh, child to parent, child to teacher, uh, and, and, and out into the wider community. So this is, uh, the whole child development is, is kind of, uh, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, I think, and the, the impact on the community and on wider society on taking emotional health um, seriously, uh, which I think we're doing more and more of as we uh, kind of have greater understanding of uh, relationships and uh, and of uh, how the brain develops uh, in, in children. So um, yeah, I, I think whole child development, uh, my experience as a, as a head teacher, uh, uh, which I finished doing eight years ago now, was that to, to take that approach in school was a real battle. Um, and, and whether it's still a battle, I'd be interested to hear. My sense is it probably is still a battle, um, and it shouldn't be because that's how you get the most results. And 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 it's not an either or. People kind of think that it's either academic or it's child development. It's the whole thing. It, that's the whole point of whole child development. So uh, it's it's a real delight to be here and to and to and be part of this. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, our third panelist today is the lovely Sabrina. Uh, Sabrina Hummel is a senior researcher at the Centre for Social Justice. Uh, thanks, Sarah, and sorry to everyone, but my prepared opening remarks are somewhat longer than my predecessors, so I'll try and whiz through them. But um, yeah, as, uh, as Sarah says, I'm Sabrina, and I'm a senior researcher in the education unit at the CSJ. Uh, we're a think tank dedicated to improving lives of the bottom 20%. Uh, within the education team, I'm part of the Integrated Programme, um, which is a coalition of organisations including Teach First, um, who are looking at how we can reduce preventable school exclusion and improve the quality of AP. Um, at Integrated, uh, we believe that embedding a whole child development approach to teaching and learning will lead to fewer preventable school exclusions, uh, and in just a moment I will tell you why. Um, learning, we think, is more than a matter of willpower. It's social, emotional, it's academic. Um, and the science of child and adolescent brain development tells us that adversity affects learning and how schools respond matters. Children at risk of exclusion and those that have been excluded are some of our most vulnerable. They're more likely to be on free school meals, more likely to have special educational needs and more likely to have social care involvement. So we think that high standards for all pupils are essential, but that those high standards have to be matched by high support. Um, and high support just means having an awareness of the factors that affect learning. Uh, and a willingness to respond to the same. It's about encouraging professional curiosity about a child's readiness to learn, looking under the hood of challenging behavior or low attainment, and a wholehearted commitment to just understanding what's going on for that child. Um, in short, exactly what kind of today's panel is about. Um, so how can we do this? Um, well, through a combination of desk-based research, interviews, and case study work, we at the Center for Social Justice have identified kind of three key areas of focus um, for schools that might want to take um, more of a whole child development approach to teaching and learning. And I will whiz you through those very quickly. Uh, the first one is building relationships within the school um, and beyond. None of us exists in a vacuum and what goes on beyond the school gates will have an impact on how a child presents in school and their readiness to learn. So we think strong supported relationships between schools and parents and carers is essential to understand what's going on for a young person. Uh, and, the, and, and also the relationships that are held um, between families and local agencies, uh, CAMs, uh, doctors and nurses, uh, the local authority, you name it. Uh, the second kind of big theme for us is ensuring people's physical and emotional safety to support engagement and reduce environmental stresses. So it might sound really obvious, but when a young person feels safe, they're more likely to engage in their learning, manage their emotions and ask for support when they need it. Uh, when they don't feel safe, they're not going to be ready to learn. Um, we know that threats to a child's safety can happen across a variety of contexts, including home, school, community. And while we don't expect schools to be able to mitigate our threats across all of those contexts, it can take a contextual approach to safeguarding um, that's alert to possible threats beyond the school gates. And finally, we think taking a developmentally informed approach to teaching and learning is a great idea. Um, and we know from our research that schools that place a premium on, on understanding how children's brains work typically have better outcomes. They intentionally create relationship-rich environments that foster a sense of belonging and safety that allows the developing brain to feel safe, secure, and at home. They see adolescents as less of a nuisance and more a second window of opportunity to encourage positive habits and good lifelong decision-making. Um, in short, schools play an enormously important role in shaping young people's lives, like everyone's on the call and panelists, like you guys do a wonderful job. Um, and they're not just places of learning, right? They're places of belonging, connection and community. 
Um, and, and yeah, that's it for me. Thank you so much, Sabrina. And then last, but by no means least, um, we've got uh, Rhoda McPherson, who is a head teacher of one of our partner schools, uh, Queen Elizabeth School in Luton. Thank you very much. Um, so like my fellow panellists, I am incredibly passionate about whole child development. Um, and like Peter said, uh, it is a battle for school leaders. Um, but a battle that I'm very passionate about fighting. So I have been at Queen Elizabeth School for two years. And in that two years, we have worked incredibly hard to ensure that we, um, we are the leader in whole child development. So in essence, um, I believe that development is malleable. So the, we have to provide support for children, provide support for the community, provide support for the teachers, provide support for the parents, um, build positive classrooms and school environments because in it, the child needs to feel safe in school and the parents need to feel safe um, in the knowledge that their child is safe. Um, human relationships are an essential ingredient um, in developing that child. Um, and we need to ensure that we reduce the rates of exclusion, as so very rightly pointed out. Uh, in order to do that, we need to create, um, and I know that you've pointed out alternative provision. So we don't send our children to alternative provision. We have got our own unit in our school to ensure that they feel safe and they know that they can return into the classroom in a safe environment. Um, and we want to ensure that, that there is that we're improving a climate and a culture within the school environment to shape those children. Um, we know that children that come from adverse environments are, are going to potentially end up not making good academic progress. So in, the, in light of the fact that we know these things, we want to develop that whole child. We want to develop good social skills, good values, um, good academic development. So we are here constantly fighting this battle. Um, so yes, we do very passionately believe in schools and it is a battle and it is a fight. But in order to build those community links and ensure that the children want to build those community links, um, we maintain those relationships and build those relationships uh, and maintain it within teaching and learning because the link has to be there in order to progress that. Thank you so much. Um, so starting us off, and if you are watching the webinar and would like to start asking questions, please do use that Q&A tab at the bottom. But I'm aware that our audience may have differing levels of knowledge or understanding of whole child development. It's one of those terms that could feel quite buzzwordy and anyone could say that they're doing. But I'm wondering um, what we would define as kind of a whole child approach as distinguished from just teaching in general. Obviously in schools, we have children with us. They are whole children, regardless of your approach, they turn up and they bring their whole selves to school, which is part of the joy and part of the challenge. Um, but I'm wondering, maybe if we start with you, Rhoda, and then um, Jenny, I'm aware you and Peter have also got classroom experience, and then we might come to Sabrina if we need some research or thinking around that. Um, but what would you define as kind of the distinguishing features of a whole child approach as opposed to just teaching and learning and pedagogy in general? So I think that um, a lot of the time within a school environment, we focus on the academic. So children come to school and it's a focus on learning and coming in and teaching them. But we're not just teaching them. Um, there is a safeguarding element. There is a mental health element. There is a counselling element. There is the element that they bring in every day in terms of what's going on in their home environment. There are the disclosures. There is the sometimes the socioeconomic environment that goes on. There are the friendships. There are the behavior issues. There are the, the relationships they forge with teachers um, or teaching assistants. Um, there are the friendships with their peers or the non-friendships with their peers. There are all sorts of things that come in in terms of the whole child. There are the values that they bring in from home that may not align. There are the religious barriers. There are the racial barriers. 
And, and that is the whole, you know, that's the whole child that we need to be looking at every day, as opposed to the English or the maths or the history that we may be teaching them. Um, so we can't just focus on the academic. We need to, to focus on what we're teaching these children because they will leave school and they need to be leaving with life skills and and a preparation for life as opposed to being able to quote Macbeth or or calculate algebra um, and being able to deal with a difficult um, conversation or how to pay their, their gas bill or how to deal with applying for housing um, or an escalation in the street. And, and this is the whole child that we need to develop or the problems that they're kind of brewing in their in their minds because there are lots of children that are facing adversity in terms of having been having dealt with a pandemic for two years or having not had a garden to sit in or having not dealt with social interaction for two years so we deal with those issues every single day um and I don't think everyone in education has taken that into account Thank you so much. So I'm aware that that's um, experience across the board, all mm. phases. Peter, either with your family links head on or with your primary head teacher head on, do you have anything to add to Rhoda's input? Um, <clears throat> I think, and, and, and Rhoda, you've just beautifully exemplified the battle that you're kind of dealing with <laughs> and, and well done, keep keep battling on. So the big difference is the environment and the culture. And, and Jenny, you mentioned it first when you talked about a mindset. You know, this isn't particular interventions. This isn't a particular uh, a thing that you can do. It's about creating a culture in a school so that um, the learning is completely... Um, there, there's habitual daily interactions which nurture the child, which nurture the adults in the school as well, so that they, um, uh, the, the whole environment uh, supports learning. It recognises the inter interconnectedness of the, um, the, 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 the parts of the different parts of the child's brain, different parts of the child's life. And the different parts of the adults who come into school as well so that you know one of the key things to developing the child is actually increasing the capabilities of the adults that surround them and that, that includes all school staff and it includes the parents and it includes other people in the community so it's a whole i think whole child development I mean, we've heard about all the different parts from Rhoda that the, the child brings and then the school environment has to absolutely have a complete culture so that when you're talking about so well, one of one of the things we do when we're working in schools is actually give uh, school staff and parents the same language to talk talk about children's emotional health so the children hear in school about the need to learn self-regulation then they hear it at home uh, and and self-regulation is a classic example you know as you said they can go out doing long multiplication and being able to quote Shakespeare and list the kings and queens of England in chronological order but if they can't self-regulate themselves then actually that that is kind of completely falls down so so it's about creating a safe environment We've heard a lot about safety a safe environment where a child can push those boundaries and learn how to self-regulate and what that means um, and what that looks like in year r is going to be different to what it looks like in year eight but but actually if you've got a whole school whole community approach then that's the ideal whole child development where that that can take place Thank you so much. Jenny, did you want to hop off the back of that? I, mean, I think I think Rhoda and Peter beautifully outlined this big picture, which is so important and the interconnectedness of the different relationships. But I want to kind of want to take it down to a really mundane level of the classroom, which is kind of where I started to learn this, because uh, in teacher training and as an early teacher, I focus so much on pedagogy. How do I best teach these children about the causes of World War One and stick it in their heads? And I used to get very frustrated when it didn't work because behavior was awful, something's going on. And it, it only gradually became clear what the issues were. And it's just recognizing that learning is often not about learning at all. It's like the girls who could not could not focus in a lesson, constantly chatting and disruptive. And when I spoke to them later, I finally managed to work out that they hadn't eaten since 
seven o'clock the previous evening and this was now like two o'clock in the afternoon it's like no wonder they can't concentrate mm -hmm. or you know in a, some of the older groups particularly there was just this conflict all the time and angst and it was you know that turns out there was issues going on in the playground um you know that they were bringing into the classroom you know even very simple things you talked about environment Peter. it's like yeah there's a wasp in the room it's windy outside and we know these are sort of jokes that teachers tell but actually they have a massive impact and it's nothing to do with the pedagogy at all i was just thinking today of that experience of sitting on a plastic chair in a 30 degree classroom at the minute is anybody going to be learning or are they going to be sitting there thinking i'm really uncomfortable i'm hot i'm tired i'm fuzzy headed um and i think you know it's just for me as a teacher bringing all that into sort of mind really helped so it's less about frustration and oh, the behavior is not very good it's like why what can i do and what influence do i have and it may be that i don't have a direct influence on some of those things but even just recognizing it is really helpful and that's why we're sort of talking in in our programs a bit more about that mindset it's like what does it mean to have a whole child lens how can you look at what's going on in your classroom and see how those things are connecting thank you so much um sabrina thank you jenny yeah all of you are so so spot on i would just piggyback off what jenny said which i think is you know what is pedagogy well that's about what a child needs to know and whole child development is about what a child needs and I think Jenny's touched on it just there, which is, you know, that readiness for learning, that unlocking of potential, that going back to kind of first principles, like, has that child, you know, witnessed domestic abuse in the home the night before, you know, how are they hungry and all of those sorts of things. It's sort of like you can't do the pedagogical work until unless and until you've done all of the bits that come before, sort of very kind of Maslow's hierarchy of need type thing. But in some ways, and at least in the research, it feels very much like a whole child development approach kind of creates those conditions for flourishing which include but aren't limited to like knowledge acquisition and skills and all of that other stuff but it's like you've got to get that stuff right first before you can talk about kind of the teaching and learning part of it so i think it's just an interesting distinction thank you so much everybody and i've got a great question in the chat but i'm going to ask one more to lead us into that question kind of so my golden thread so i think it's been very, very apparent and also by the fact we've asked you to be on this panel that we have a shared passion and desire to see whole child approaches embedded in schools so why is it a battle why is that not the default why is that not our status quo uh, what are the barriers or the blockers that are in place making it difficult for us to embed this approach when clearly it has so much going for it um, Anyone wants to wave at me because they would like to go first? If not, I'll go to Jenny because I know that she and I have talked about this a lot, so she can get us started. We have. Thank you. Um, actually, I would refer back to when this project started at Teach First, and actually, even within Teach First, I met resistance. And a lot of that resistance, I think, I believe is similar to what schools find or school leaders find, is that there is an accountability framework, and there is a huge focus on academic achievement and outcomes, and schools are measured, they're judged on very narrow frame of reference. And we can look at GCSEs now, and we, you know, we're eroding BTECs, and, you know, it's like you say, not all students are going to leave school with a great set of results. So the big question is, what do we want them to leave with? And I think, you know, that's what sort of overcome or is starting to overcome some of those barriers, I hope, is recognising that actually because they're all interconnected, we want good outcomes. All these things need to matter, but actually they matter even more, perhaps, for those students who find academic work unsuitable for them. It's just not something that's their strength, but they have strengths in other places. And if we can really support that, then we can overcome that. But it's that fear of diluting somehow academic achievement, that there's a drop in our academic achievement if we focus on these other things. Um, and hopefully, you know, that's something we're starting to see eroding a bit and a bit more recognition because we're seeing that research showing that your social and emotional well-being is actually linked to your outcomes. It's also linked to your future outcomes. It's not just how well you do at school, it's how you, well you do in life as an adult. And if we want healthy, happy populations, we need to make sure that they're healthy and happy at school as well. It's no good saying, well, struggle your way through school, get, rid get through it, and then you can leave and have a happy life later on, because we know it doesn't actually work like that. Thank you so much. Sabrina, I'm wondering in kind of policy and at that governmental level, if you've got any insight to the blockers or the barriers that might be affecting implementation. Oh, great question. Um, so I think that one of the, the, the hesitancies that, that we certainly see in government is that whole child development is kind of misunderstood. So they see it as kind of a nice to have 
um, but not a, a must-have kind of what Jenny was saying. It's um, the sense that it's kind of the thing that comes after you you set high expectations. But what we would say is just have high expectations, but let's have high support too. And that's all of the, the work that wraps around the child to support them to get to that place in the first place. Um, and I think we're really lucky to be in a position now where we've got you know huge advances in like you know science in, in brain imaging and kind of a shared language for the national trauma of having been through COVID. Um, because historically the way that kind of whole child development has been talked about ha has sometimes been a little bit fluffy and so the the big rebuttal that we get is okay but but what is it how do you do it how do you measure it um and and now you know we've got all of we've got the sort of the evidence i guess that we need and so from my perspective it's let's have a really evidence-based um conversation about whole child development that moves us from like we morally believe it's the right thing to do and into kind of like, and this is why, and this is how, and I feel like we've really got those tools at our disposal now, particularly if we look at how the government responded to COVID. So catch up was about um, academic stuff, but it was also in part, although we might argue not enough about all of the other bits that we know schools do well. So examples of schools, you know, going out and doing home visits, delivering meals and, and all of that stuff. And so in some ways, you know, this, the stage is very much set for us to have much more nuanced conversations about whole child development that we have historically. And I think that has been one of the biggest blockers. Thank you so much. So having gone secondary then primary, I'm going to flip it on its head. Peter, from your practice perspective, what's blocking? I think um, it's this, it is this ridiculous pressure on schools for, for very narrow uh, attainment targets. Um, and that level of pressure is so intense that it's really hard for professionals in schools to, to look up and, and see anything else now and that's where the battle comes in i think Rhoda. this you know the schools that are, are are forcing themselves to do that but that is an additional pressure and the idea that you know uh, that all you have to do is stick in an intervention and that'll do it and i think we that that was kind of evidence for me by this this the mindfulness survey this week you know, actually you you know give a class half an hour of mindfulness and then and then it's pressure 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 that then of course mindfulness isn't going to have any kind of impact at all so so i think you know that there's more nuance nuance than that but this idea that somehow everything is a quick fix and and actually we'll try something and if it, uh, it hasn't worked in six months to a year well quickly let's do something else so there's this panic pressure um that that that, that there must be a magic uh, a magic tablet that you can take and will make it better and will make everyone get the uh, academic results that we want them to get and it's just not that easy there is it's much more about this this whole child approach that we're talking about here which will have that impact but that requires an ability to step back and look up and put in place the changes that need and, and of course changing an environment changing a culture there are some some quick fixes but to really make a change, you have to invest over a number of years. And, and, and the pressure is so great that, that schools really struggle to do that. Only those that are, are, are willing to, to kind of have that battle uh, can do it. So I think that's, that for me is the, the, real, the real barrier. Thank you. And talking of that battle, it's a battle you're doing all the time, Rhoda. Are there any other blockers that you feel like we haven't covered? Hey. So it's, I mean, I think we've talked about them, but it, it is the limitation of the curriculum. So we have to deliver that curriculum. Um, all of the children that have just sat GCSEs um, who we've put through after all of the school that they've missed and the anxiety we've seen them go through sitting in that exam hall, the number of therapeutic coach, coaching sessions we've delivered. We have a five day a week um, coaching service in our school. We don't call it counselling, we call it therapeutic co um, coaching that children can be referred to or self-refer and so can the staff. And it, it's extortionately expensive, but I think it's something that's definitely needed and required. Um, and then we, um, we've put those children through that. However, what we have done within that curriculum is that we have um, taken something called character development. We've looked at all of our curriculum and we've mapped all the strands that we think uh, apply to whole child development taken them out of our curriculum and we deliver it as something that we think applies to whole child development so we know that everything we're teaching within our curriculum that can be applied to the whole child we we know can be mapped within the curriculum and we can deliver separately so we're trying to plug the gaps there we're trying to plug the gaps through the, um, the therapeutic coaching, but we're limited by the curriculum. Um, so you, you do what you can where you can do it, um, but it, it is difficult. And I think my, my colleagues here on the panel 
have noted these these issues too. Thank you so much, Jenny. I think you wanted to add something before we go to our next question. I did, and actually, I wanted to add something a little bit. I hope it's positive in a way, um, and it goes back to what we were talking about previously with that sort of um, whole community model of whole child. That it's it's about all those relationships and interactions. There was some work that Parent Ping, which was an offshoot of Teacher Tap, did uh, during lockdown, and they were talking to parents about what do they care about about school, what's important in a school for them, and yeah, academics were there. You know what? Top of the list. I want my child to be happy. Mm. You know, that's the priority for parents. And actually, that's brilliant because we know that happy children are kind of probably going to learn better anyway. So, you know, there, there is at least that support, I think, for schools trying to do that work to get the parents backing aboard. So, you know, all the other pressures notwithstanding, I think, you know, that alone is enough to make us, you know, to, to well, I hope to encourage schools to really look at it. Thinking about that cross-phase relationship, I think that's something even on our move from EY up I know my parents' evenings with nursery and reception parents. It is, is my child happy? Are they settling? Have they made friends? And somewhere that shifts to, are they reading gold books yet? Can they do long division? And I can't put my finger on when it happens, but it, that shift continues. So speaking of parents, um, we've got a question from Lucy, who is one of our audience. And she says, having current lived experience as a parent of a child who has not been able to attend school since May 2021 for a variety of reasons that we've highlighted today, where there aren't any of the provisions or awareness or knowledge of what to do, what signposts can we give to schools or school leaders to better support our children? What is the role of the parent when the school or the services don't know how to progress? Um, I'm looking for someone to cop me a wink or a wave. Moda? Oh, Peter, waved. Let's go to Peter. Well, I think I, the thing is, uh, working with parents is apps is just so key. It's so 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 key. Um, and and the schools that I've been in where we have intentionally and uh, spent time investing in the parents and uh, and what their needs are, what they what they uh, what they. Uh, want how they want support together with other organizations has has been where we've seen the the, the kind of most uh, improvement in terms of uh, how the school functions and and attainment um and and i think that's the key thing you know this isn't you none of this is separate it's all completely interconnected um uh and and, and for a lot of parents um uh school it, they don't necessarily have a good experience of school um and so there there is a desire to kind of be a bit at arm's length um but if a school has the right approach to parents and can break down those barriers then it can begin to have the conversations and build the relationships with those parents and the other organizations so that the parents feel that they're not um they're not battling on their own i i worked in and my last my last school was uh, had had significant um uh, issues it was an area of relative deprivation um and what we noticed very powerfully was um that when the children and lots of this will be familiar with lots of schools when the children came back came into school for a holiday we had to really uh, uh, deal with behavior within a week we had it sorted and it was great and then the last week of term up it bubbled again because we had created in school a safe environment for them to be home was not always a safe environment and they were beginning to recognize that they were going back especially over the summer to that unsafe environment so actually it, it didn't matter how great we made the school there was still more work to be done so that's when we began working intentionally with the parents and that's when we saw the dramatic change um, and there's all sorts of ways of doing it um, and that can be through uh, children with particular needs and, and investing time and energy supporting them but it can just be all parents just working out what it looks like to be uh, to be a nurturing community thank you so much Rhoda um I think in my experience as well, I think when I arrived at my school, the relationship with the school and the community and the parents and external agencies was quite poor. But I think the school is really your base and your link to external agencies, to parents, to, to your child. And I think building that relationship is really, really important. And you should always be able to come in to the school and have a conversation with um with anyone really the head teacher should be accessible the senko should be accessible 
the um, whoever it is in that school, I mean, we've got two SENCOs, we've got somebody that runs our alternative provision or our inclusion unit, as I like to call it, um, you know, our student services, and they are your link to a whole host of external agencies and services that can support you or who can come to your home and support you uh, and support your child coming back into school or going into a, a provision that will help them get them back into school because it, they should be your your support mechanism and your support for the community and for, for getting back in even if it's just for half an hour a day and building that time up so they are your access um really and your support network and that really shows the links and the strength of that network thank you Ada. jenny yeah, i mean obviously sometimes it will depend on the nature of the reason why yeah. why attendance is a problem um but certainly i've quite a lot of experience with students whose anxiety levels just increased to a point where you know going into school became more and more difficult and i think the, the biggest shift in in, in sort of how that worked was listening to them, having an open conversation. What are the concerns? What are you most anxious about? How can we address that? What do you want me to do? So, and that varied from student to student. Sometimes it was about the environment of the classroom, the feeling of with fear of failure or fear of being mocked if they answered questions they didn't want to participate. So we talked about ways that we could, you know, help them participate without that risk. Other students, perhaps a bit older maybe, but you know, was having problems coming in. And therefore was missing work and therefore didn't want to come in because they were always catching up and always felt behind so actually that was much more about having a regular supply of work making sure they weren't getting behind providing work online or that they could do and communicating with them giving them feedback on it so that when they did come in they weren't playing catch up and they didn't feel as anxious because of the work they missed so i mean it will vary quite quite a lot but i think you're right it's that having that ongoing relationship made it possible to have those conversations both with the students and with the parents to address issues. It's about that listening. It's a two-way relationship. I think the risk is, and it goes back to the accountability issues, that things like attendance becomes a stick because school has to maintain their attendance and that, you know, there's a threshold. And if you don't meet the threshold, you get letters home. Um, and that, I've seen an awful lot of that during COVID from some schools. An automatic letter goes home when they, they, you know, they drop below the threshold. Like they've been off for two weeks because they were isolating. There's nothing they could do about it. Um, but it's also, you know, it doesn't stop once you get... <laughs> If they've been absent, there's a reason. Getting them into school is the first step, but then you've got to keep that discussion going, keep that relationship going. Otherwise, what you'll find is they'll just they'll just be absent again, unfortunately. Completely. And I think, Lucy, a, a key element of your question is this discrepancy between the individual level and the systems level. So a lot of us here believe that a better embedding of an enactment of whole child approaches through that whole child lens in general shifts schools in general's culture towards a place that children who have needs in those areas of development or against the code of practice, whichever we're using um, to assess, are able to engage and thrive and do really well in their mainstream school environment. Unfortunately, in that system, we also know at the moment that we've got a chronic lack of special schools. We need 50 a year built, and we're not building that currently. We've got the longest waiting lists for CAMs that we've had on record because of the pandemic and the impact of that. So I completely empathise too that our answer may not be huge solace to you as a parent of an individual who's currently not having their needs met within that system. I would say keep your lines of communication open with the school if your child is still placed within that school and advocate um, Twitter and SEND. Twitter can be a great place to find support for that advocacy. There are from some fantastic SEND organisations and um, advocate organisations there. Also your local authority, um, although we have Academy Trust, they do have that oversight. So reaching out to your cabinet member for education or your county or your city councillor to have support with that advocacy piece could help you at an individual level but I also acknowledge we have spoken system-wide and your question was individual and I see that and I'm sorry we can't be more specific but I do wish you all the very best with navigating it because it is a really really tricky time right now and I don't want to try and minimize that in our responses um I've got another question um which is a research facing one so I hope this is okay Sabrina to think on your toes if not chuck Jenny in and she can go first 
Um, but Heather is asking us, what does research suggest are the key things that schools can do to support whole child development at either a whole school or a classroom level? Um, great question. So I can answer this um, insofar as how a whole child development approach is applicable to reducing exclusions. And so there's a lot of literature around uh, the sorts of children that are most likely to be excluded. Um, and because we know from the research that whole child development is particularly good, what is good for all children, but particularly those in adversity, that's kind of our nexus and my research focus. Um, and off the back of kind of our, our desk-based research conversations with leaders, et cetera, I think there are a number of things that, um, that schools can be doing to support whole child development. Um, I touched on a few of them in my opening statements, but I can um, expand on those a bit more. Um, but the first thing I think is just um, is getting a really holistic picture of what a child's needs are. And this might not sound super classroomy, but and 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 confusing, but essentially just like really um, holding that child and not just like who they are when they, when they show up for their English class, but but what other needs have they got. And I don't think that that is something that schools, or certainly the literature suggests, it's not something schools could do by themselves. So it's something that all of our panelists have spoken about, but relationships, right? Relationship building, whether it's a teacher to student, student to student, or, or, or school to home. And quite concerningly, you know, our polling on, we did a subset of polling on whole child development and really few um, schools, just one in three had, you know, clear and consistent parental engagement strategies. And so while this is something that teachers know are important and certainly many are doing it, um, it's not um, entirely um, systematized or there's not necessarily as much as of it going on as teachers might like. They cite, you know, time barriers as being a big one. So, so to answer the question, yeah, what could schools do at classroom? Well, build relationships and that's going to look different in different settings. If you're in a, you know, mainstream school, you might have a form tutor. If you're in an AP school, you might have a key worker. Like it, it's really variable, but in some ways it's that, is part of what's beautiful about whole child development is it could be as simple as like a consistent and regular hello at the door or it could be an intervention sometimes but largely it's in um in in conjunction with all of the the other actors in the education space the other thing is to make make schools safe you know have a look at um schools can have a look at bullying um or discrimination discrimination cultural bias all of the things that might contribute to a more unsafe uh, school context where children aren't really able to flourish and, and thrive um and then just to, to, for teachers to, to have sort of slightly more um, support and training on uh, child and adolescent brain development that's um, significantly lacking from teacher training um, and just in our polling just half of teachers um, you know say that they understand the science of how a child's brain works for the age range they teach so there are a number of things sort of at training school and kind of relationship building levels that, that schools might be able to do and I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much. Um, Peter, did you want to hop off the back of that? Just very quickly, really, the um, uh, so the research which, which was carried out in uh, 2015 uh, found that emotional health at age 16 is a stronger predictor of mental health and life chances at age 30 than either demographic or socioeconomic factors. So, you know, this is, this is significant stuff. This is about whole life chances, and and, and that that part, part of me wants to say that on its own is enough to feed the desire to make sure we've got whole child development, whole community development involved. Because you get emotional health right at age sixteen, that that individual has a huge amount to uh, to, to 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 then kind of benefit from. Jenny, yeah, I mean two things. One, I'm actually going to pick up what Rosie was talking about because what her school's doing is I think what the research is suggesting what we need to do is embed these ideas into everything we do it's not here's a mindfulness session on a Monday morning it's not in tutor time we'll talk about what healthy relationships look like we might do that but actually it's how does it thread through the entire curriculum are we looking at what happens across the whole day what happens in the corridors what happens in the playground how we talk in lessons you know how do we how do every does every teacher it's a bit like every teacher the teacher of literacy every teacher the teacher of SEND actually every teacher should be developing the social and emotional development of students it's not just their cognitive development it's like actually how do we behave in a classroom that shows respect to our peers so that for me is what the research is telling us to do but also the second thing I'd, I'd suggest that we need to start thinking about doing more because I'm going to say some schools do it already but not many we need to measure it and it, it sounds sort of counterintuitive in many ways but actually 
you know, it's a sort of aphorism. We, we measure what we value. We value what we measure. At the minute, we're focused on measuring grades, progress, academics, and numbers of exclusion. Actually, well, are we measuring mental health? Are we looking at the emotional health of our children? And if we're not capturing that in some way or understanding what the picture is in our school, we can't change it. We make assumptions and we, we ask some questions in surveys of teachers and head teachers about, you know, did they believe that a school supported a culture of whole child development? And the vast majority were very, very positive. But the question to me was, how do you know? You know, are you measuring it? Are you looking at it? Because actually just thinking you do is not the same thing as having the evidence that you're actually doing it. Thank you so much. Bodhi, you've popped impact reports. Would you like to speak about impact reports? Yeah, so we have started to measure it. It's hard to measure it. So I think in some of the research, um, it does highlight this. It highlights how do you measure this? So how do you measure um, whole child development? Um, so we have started to measure the therapeutic coaching um, and that's through impact reports. And the idea of it is that you don't have um, ongoing coaching sessions because otherwise children will want to be there forever um, because it, it's lovely isn't it it's lovely to go in and have a coaching session with somebody every week um, but we have impact reports and when we start to see impact the children actually then take themselves away and they say well look actually this is great and now I, I don't need to be here anymore and we keep the impact reports and they're anonymized and then we have a, a termly impact report to show that we're We've got some whole child development impact and we have character development impact reports because it's threaded through the curriculum and it links to our reward system because actually the research also shows that positive that praise and positive behavior in lessons um, also um, is attributed to whole child development um, and assertive discipline and rewards all of this shows that it, it contributes to whole child development. So we have started to thread it through our rewards policy and it links to our values. And this is showing um, impact reports as well. So we, we're now linking it to our impact reports and that's how we've started to measure it. So maybe that will develop into something, hopefully. Really helpful. Thank you, Ada. And it's fascinating to me with a background in Key Stage 1 and EY and Special because we do have to measure those things because we may not be as laser-focused in our academic measurement. We track for the personal, social and emotional development of children. We track for the physical development of children. And that's part of our day-to-day -day practice. And again, as we move up, it gets lost slightly. So speaking of those things, and this is kind of a double-pronged question because I'm aware we have 11 minutes left. As someone who has built her career at the bottom end and in special, I feel that the four aspects that Jenny has identified as what we define as whole child development at Teach First, spoiler alert, that's not necessarily the sector's consensus, it's the definition we work with here. So cognitive, physical, emotional, and social. I feel those four don't get an equal billing. And we know cognitive comes at the front because of academic progress. But I'm really noticing in our conversation today, it's the physical which consistently drops off the bottom. Um, and that's something, again, in special and early years, we have to be incredibly proactive about. If someone can't write, we're thinking about their fine motor skills and their gross motor skills and whether they can circle and envelop and jump and climb. Um, we know that with ADHD, a lot of physical activity can really help with that, but initiatives like the daily mile seem to drop off as you move up through school systems. We have our health checks, we have our brush bus for dental care. And I'm just wondering, A, is that a consensus we share as a panel or is it my warped view at the bottom? And B, where do you, how do you feel about the distribution of those four factors in your phase? Does it change as we go through? Does the emotional outplay the social? What's the status quo? What are your thoughts? That was the wordiest question of all time. So what about physical? And then in your phase, what do you think is going on? Um, if you need a second of thinking time, a la Douglamov, to process that word from it, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, go for it, Sabrina. Thank you for saving me. <laughs> no worries. Uh, certainly, it's something um, we've thought about um, at the Centre for Social Justice, but much more in respect of kind of enrichment and opportunities um, 
for non-formal learning and things that sit outside of the timetable. And, and we've done some polling that found that one in five parents in England report that their children do no enrichment activities in an average week, and that this rises to one in four. So not only are children not doing enough of it, but it's particularly affecting the most disadvantaged. And so I would say we, it's definitely something that, that needs to be spoken about more. It's sort of assumed maybe that kids will walk to and from school, or like somehow they'll get their 60 minutes a day or, or access to these sorts of um, enriching activities outside of, uh, of the school day. And so I think there's definitely a place for, for more enrichment and certainly more extracurricular. Um, we've been um, yeah, looking into kind of an enrichment guarantee that would see you know, every child um, entitled to five hours of enrichment um, and extracurricular activity a day outside of the, um, in the sort of three to five window. So it's an area we're really interested in. We know it's so important, you know, that, you know, obesity and, and all of that, um, you know, severely impacted on, on your likelihood of getting COVID and getting it badly. So yeah, on, on a ton of different levels, never mind the benefits I know that everyone's familiar with of, in terms of physical activity on, or mental health, your well-being. Like, yeah, it seems like a real uh, missed opportunity, uh, certainly kind of in the policy space. I think as well, speaking of COVID, the school where I'm an early years governor, which is served two very large tower blocks, the children in early years just wanted to run this cohort when they came in because there's a huge field and there wasn't much access to outside space in the pandemic and it felt awful to be like no sit and do phonics when what they wanted to do was run around the field we ended up taking them to the adventure playground across the road twice a week to just climb it out and have that movement and that enrichment jenny i think you wanted to do next do, do cut me off if my network goes a bit glitchy, it's playing up a bit. Um, I've just been to my kids' sports day um, at primary, and every child took part in everything. And my experience at secondary is it becomes competitive, and only a few children take part if they want. And there's huge, you know, we, we used to go around bribing pretty much children to try and take, get them to take part, and they just didn't want to. And I think that is a massive challenge in secondary there we, and there are lots of reasons for it um but it becomes much more restricted to pe lessons it tends to be more competitive girls in particular apart from the very sporty ones tend to drop out almost altogether um you know we we're having battles about kids turning up with tights under their pe kit and sort of trying to point out it's not very hygienic and um, because they just don't want to engage and there's a lot of peer pressure a lot of social issues so i think there's a lot of work to be done there about how we get children to engage in physical activity in a really wide, broader sense, for health reasons, because because we know it supports mental health, but in ways that you know encourages people to to engage and overcome that reluctance. Thank you, Jenny. I'm wondering, Rhoda, how you find PE, but also non-PE physical activity within the secondary space. Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. Sorry, my fault. I think it's really important. I think. Um, they thrive on it. We um, have a an, an awful lot of outdoor space and a lot of sporting activity um, and not just PE, but also, you know, the time that they spend outdoors. Um, and I think if they didn't have that time, it would cause difficulties when it was time in the classroom or time to transition or I think they need that physical time um, and I think they enjoy that physical time. It's also social interaction. It's social time and it's the time that is needed for development um, and learning to interact with each other and interact with adults and interact with anyone that's in their kind of periphery. So I, I think it's really important and I don't think I'd ever want to take that away from them or, or limit it. 100 percent peter i don't know if you wanted in yeah i think i'm just reflecting on the fact that when we were talking about um uh, a kind of emotional development how we said you know you can't just stick an intervention in and think that's going to work that actually it's about a, a whole whole school approach a, a change of culture and mindset and i i'm wondering whether there's a similar um a similar thing here about uh physical 
activity in that it can't just be that that it's for those it's for p lessons or it's for those who 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 can do enrichment activities it needs to be embedded somehow and i'm not sure i've got the answer to how you do that but that feels like the direction it feels like what rhoda was saying about uh, her school there they, they're moving in that direction there's the idea that this is completely embedded and it's not oh you do your physical activity in your p lesson and if you're lucky enough to go to football club it needs to be much more embedded. I, I I don't know how you achieve that, but that it seems that to, that you know if we're going to take physical uh, seriously as we have been taking emotional and cognitive and social, then 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 it, it it is literally looking at all of that and how you how you create a culture where that is all completely embedded in in everything you do. And we've been working with the Youth Sport Trust on our PE context. Our primary teachers need to be trained in PE. And they've got a really interesting five-strand approach where they talk about PE, sports, physical activity, active learning and play. And that those are the kind of strands of physical activity rather than just the PE. So signpost if you haven't checked that resource out. So we have four minutes left and four panellists. I'm going to ask us each, as we wrap up, to have a think about... For our listeners or people who may not be in school leadership, they may be a classroom teacher or whose sphere of influence is smaller, what's one thing they could do tomorrow at school that could help them to explore the whole child lens? And what is one positive or sign of hope that you've seen in the whole child space so that we don't leave um, desolate about the future, but knowing that there are little green shoots and things are getting better. So one takeaway, whatever your sphere of control and one sign of hope, um, who's happy to kick us off? Go for it, Peter. Thank you. I think I, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're, you know, you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm back in my classroom tomorrow. Um, I think, you know, you can have a huge impact on those, you know, those, those people that you interact with. And but I don't just mean the, the young people that you're, you're, you're responsible for, but I mean, the people on the, that you work with the adults, the other adults you work with the school and the parents you interact with. So it's, you know, you might not feel you can change the school let alone change the world but you can you can change your classroom and you can think about the approach you you take and we 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 talk about empathy a lot and empathy being your race card so absolutely you know a child comes in you know angry say you know you look as if you're feeling angry today and and kind of just kind of identify that feeling with them so begin that to nurture in that way and i where and my sign of hope is that i see that happening in committed teachers kind of um uh, up and down the country when we interact with them and and that's my sign of hope Thank you so much. Um, I'm going across my screen. Jenny, would you like to go next? Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit similar, I think, in terms of what would I want people to do is that it's take that whole child lens with you. So when something happens or when you're confronted with an issue, whether it's a you know behavior in a classroom, it's just think back and remember what's the whole picture here? You know, could this be about something else? I mean, actually, you know, sometimes it is just kids messing about but often there is something behind it you know was there an incident in the playground beforehand you know and right now because we'll just, we, we're hot and bothered you know let's just remember that and then we'll take a step back I think you know something you mentioned earlier it's like it's the whole adult as well as the whole child and actually looking at our own emotional state and regulation this can be really helpful to say actually is this about me uh, the answer is sometimes no but actually sometimes you know it's how we respond to things can change things so I think I that would be what I'd focus on I think for me the big sign of hope is is that when i talk about measuring things like this people don't just go oh don't be ridiculous they don't brush it off they don't they don't say it we can't do it actually people start and say actually i want to be able to do this and let's look at ways that we could um, because i think that will help us on our journey to towards improving things and making making it easier to sort of embed these things across our program thank you so much sabrina you're next on my screen if that's okay yeah um I reckon my one takeaway piece of advice, if I'm even qualified to give it, would just be it's not rocket science. Um, so much of it is intuitive, so much of it is all of the wonderful things that we do as human beings anyway to seek connection um, with other people and, and to be empathetic. So I just say don't don't panic, like it's not rocket science, like keep doing all of the wonderful things that you do and just rest assured that like every day you're sowing little seeds that will probably one day like flourish into something like really beautiful. So just keep keep doing it and, and don't in some ways don't overthink it because we can do that it's not rocket science um and in terms of shoots of hope well being part of the integrated coalition which has all of these organizations that are all kind of working in the space and seeing you know the research that you guys are coming out with at teach first and, and all of the other partners is just so exciting like there's such a 
such an optimism about this space and a desire to kind of to speak kind of as one and to have our say and a seat at the table and that that's been really exciting thank you so much and coming to you last Rhoda um, I think just everything that everyone else has said, just take a look at the children in front of you. Um, consider what's going on around them every day as they come into school, what they're interacting with, what they've come in from. Everything might be amazing. Things might not be amazing. Consider that you're not just educating them with the subject that you might be teaching them or what you might be delivering, but that they are a person that one day won't be in school and um, one day will perhaps be a parent perhaps be a teacher perhaps be something else and that we are the people that are shaping that um but that's happening i can see that it's happening so just keep at it thank you so much and thank you everybody who's joined us on such a hot afternoon when you're probably with my whole adult lens on pretty tired and pretty drained as we come to the end of term. Um, we will be back to future terms in the new academic year, so you can use the hashtag future terms panel to continue this conversation on Twitter. If you'd like to follow any of our panellists on Twitter, you can find their bios on the Teach First website on the future terms page. Um, it's been really lovely spending an hour with you and chatting about this. It's something I think you've seen all of us are really passionate about um, so thank you panelists for your time thank you audience for joining us and i hope everyone has a really lovely summer when it finally gets here thanks for listening to future terms from teach first we'll be back soon with another event to find out more and to attend visit teachfirst.org.uk forward slash future terms <laughs>